is it really so bad to change culturally? What what are we afraid of that will change? Everybody eats Thai food in this country. In fact, that's one of the great things about this country. Exactly. Like, how horrible did we become when we began loving Italian food? I don't get it. Well, maybe it's salsa that frightens us the most. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Cynthia Buiza, is the very accomplished executive director of the California Immigrant Policy Center which is a key organization fighting for the rights of immigrants in our largest state, and one that is demonstrating that treating immigrants well by upholding their humanity redounds to the benefit of the rest of the country. CIPC is a hub and has a steering committee composed of numerous partner organizations in the state. I enjoyed getting to know Cynthia and learning about CIPC. You will too. So first my sponsor, and then my interview with Cynthia Buiza, with the California Immigrant Policy Center. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Cynthia, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Definitely. Thank you for for having me in your podcast. Uh, My name is Cynthia Buiza. I am the executive director of the California Immigrant Policy Center. We are a statewide immigrant advocacy organization that's fighting to ensure that immigrant communities in our state are included in the California dream, as it were. I am an immigrant from the Philippines. I came here as a student, ended up having a life in America. So uh, before that, I was actually a humanitarian worker. That's what we were called. You know, I worked in war zones in different parts of the Asia-Pacific, starting in the Philippines, because I I grew up during the Marcos dictatorship. So I became a student activist there and an organizer and somehow continued that work beyond the Philippines. I ended up working in Thailand with Burmese refugees, as well as the many, many refugees that make their way from Thailand to Australia to Western Europe. And pretty much, yeah, the, the first half of my life as a so-called social activist was spent working on behalf of international refugees and migrants. And about 17 years ago, I came to America and I ended up working with immigrants in the United States. So you can say that migration has really been my life as an immigrant, as, as, as somebody who works with immigrants and displaced population. Well, there's certainly a 
endless amount of work to do in that area. So you'll never want for challenges, I'm sure. Definitely. I got a sense from another interview that I saw of you that the Marcos government and their abuses was formative for you, that what you saw happening there was part of making who you are. What was it that you saw under a dictatorship in the Philippines? You are correct about the word formative because I was very young when martial law was was in place. And I remember vividly, I can never forget this, and I, I don't tire sharing this story when I was a child. You know, children, we had a big backyard. My childhood friends would often come over and we would play hide and seek. You know, it was before the internet. So we... Um, we would play hide and seek during full moon. And then suddenly this loud megaphone would just uh, burst into our ears and it would be military tanks telling the population to get inside their houses because at eight o'clock it was curfew. So we had curfew from eight in the evening to about four or five in the morning. They modified that between four or five in the morning every day for a long time. And it was in the background. I was like, something's wrong. And for some reason, I ended up taking a social course undergraduate. And that was formative, too, because one of our professors in college was abducted by the military. She was one of the many disappeared under that rule. and. I, somehow, it paved the way for me uh, making this decision to pour my life into this work. I originally wanted to be an English teacher because I, I loved writing. I like you know when I was twelve years old, I told myself I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to tell stories. Um, but the conditions in my country, we had a lot of creatives who were part of the civil rights movement there, but. My work actually entailed organizing in the countryside because during that time, even after the Marcos administration uh, was was booted out by it was the so-called People Power Revolution, uh, Korea Kino pretty much uh, continued some of the the military operations on the ground. So, you know, we were just in villages, living there, making sure families had some way of dealing with the traumas of these military atrocities that were being perpetrated continuously, even after Marcos was gone. I don't think that a lot of American citizens have any grasp at all of how different we have it. Clearly, there are classes in our country that are in fear because they're undocumented or for other reasons. But I remember my mother visiting Eastern Europe when it was still behind the, the Iron Curtain and the way that people whispered and the lack of freedom under the Soviet Union's power and the way it is in dictatorships around the world. We are not immune from that here, I don't think. We, we have little pieces of it. We have threats of it. And we've had our brush with it in a certain way under Trump. It's just incredibly crucial to have people like you who are on the forefront of fighting to keep freedom and expand freedom. I appreciate you uh, bringing that up because it, it is true. I have experienced what it is like not to have freedom. And, and I know what it is to live in fear. 
living in these villages, even when I was working in Thailand with Burmese refugees, because, you know, in Myanmar, they call that Myanmar now, right? They are still under the dictatorship. And until you live those stark realities and come to America and live with this contrast of sometimes how people here take things for granted, it is mystifying to me because I've seen so many people would give their lives to have the freedoms that we have. And that's where we talk a lot about the resilience of immigrants. And it's because we've gone through hell. Like many of us go through tremendous odds to get here. And really, if I will just speak for myself, it was really for me when I came here, the notion that America was different. You know, it was, I call it the country of our last hopes. Uh, and it was because of this idea that that growing up as a Filipina, as a woman, and as somebody who, who watched how those freedoms were undermined in my country and other places I've worked, it was like, yeah, as long as we can look to places that have these examples, there's a fighting chance, right? The struggle between good and evil, if you want to call it that way, uh, there's a fighting chance for the good. So I was so surprised, especially um, in the last few years, uh, to see how dangerously uh, we are testing those boundaries of of being an, an unfree people. And we have to be very careful what we ask for uh, because I've I've seen I've seen it all, uh, Nathaniel. Mass graves, people being tortured, women being raped, violence as a weapon of war. We really have to 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 think very carefully about where we want to go as a country. Yes, and we have forces that are playing with that at our peril right now, driving wedges among our people and it's just it's terrifying honestly we but let's talk a little bit more about how you got into the place that you got tell me about coming to the u.s for the first time and what that felt like it's actually funny because you know i i a lot of filipinos have that that american mentality because we grow up like i, I there was a time where i read more american literature Philippine literature. I actually grew up reading Mother Goose stories, and I was reading Sylvia Plath and and all these American writers, William Faulkner, before I was reading our national writers in the Philippines. So being very honest with you, I have this starry-eyed notion of what it was uh, to be here, like any other immigrant, um, even with being an activist. Uh, I did come here for to study. Uh, I got a scholarship from Tufts University, and it was a great stroke of luck because by that time I was prepared to to take a pause from um, so humanitarian work and, and study. But when the plane was landing in Los Angeles where uh, I was stopping for the first time, I, I just saw these like Acres and acres of parking lots. <laughs> oh, not our best feature. <laughs> yeah, 2,000 2, feet above ground. And there were this glinting roof of steel, you know, of, of cars. And it's like, 
oh my God, so many cars, like huge parking lots, right? I lived in places where public transportation was the thing because, you know, not a lot of people own cars in places where I lived. So that was like the, another image that I can't forget. But the scholarship being embraced by the community that I made here in LA helped to address the deep isolation that many immigrants, especially older immigrants, who come here feel because that was tough. Like for the first six years of my life, I was always getting ready to leave, you know, because I'm the only one here. I don't have family members here. I can't bring my family here because it takes so long to petition your relatives. Like I have Filipino friends who had to wait 22 years to be reunited with their parents, right? And I didn't want to put I didn't want to put my sisters through that. They have good lives in the Philippines and But yeah, that was, you know, finding a job in LA in the immigrant rights movement helped address some of the challenges that an an immigrant faces. I was thinking about you using the word starry-eyed about this country. I think I still have a starry-eyed view of the country at the same time as an awareness of its flaws. For my family, which escaped... Eastern Europe and Ukraine at around the turn of the century in steerage with no money. It was a very good thing they came to this country, even though it took a long time to prosper. If we hadn't come, we would have been eradicated as our relatives over there were. And so this country has been very good to my family and to many people that I know. And yet we know that it's not been great around the world always and not great internally always. And and I kind of try to keep in my head both the aspirations that we have, the high principles and the flaws of the leaders and and the policies along the way. And I, I suspect you have to face a lot of that too. Absolutely. And you know, when I say, when I say starry eyed, I'm not saying that in a, like a, a giddy teenagers notion of of a place right it's more uh, like what you pointed out there are a lot of good things about this country and i really try to keep a balanced view of of who we are because i I am an american now I, i consider this place home so i care very much about making sure that the values that has made this place a magnet for many people like me you know, when when I when I say last hopes, it is true. Like I have so many friends who feel like, yeah, I can be happy finally if I make it to America, right? And so, how do we balance that with the fact that we are now in a place where we're losing some of that? And when the country loses it, so does a great population of people who anchor their hopes and their values on what we stood for. And we, what we are still trying to stand for. Because I, I, I don't regret coming here, no matter how hard it has been over the few years. I have opportunities I would never have had if I hadn't come to the United States. But it's like, how do we moderate that with some of the darker forces that, as you pointed out earlier, encroaching in, in our ability to, to get to this place where we can not just be an example, but really live, live that, that promise that many of us brought, brought here. 
I mean, it feels like our relationship with immigrants and with immigration has been contested for so long, has gone through so many ups and downs, so many panics about different categories of people, yellow peril or red scares or different things along the way. We've had liberalization in our immigration policies. We've made them more conservative and more exclusionary, particularly of late. It's just a fight. It's, It's not something that resolves. It's something that is ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. It has been very protracted. I often say that our inability to come together uh, politically and culturally and socially on this issue has, has created this snowball of challenges around the discourse, around what solutions we can come together to address one thing, you know, We have this population that has been here for a long time, that has contributed to who we are as a society. And just for the most fundamental of reasons, what is the right thing to do for them? You know, I mean, so many things have been written about contributions that immigrants make to our economy, to our cultural diversity, to to everything. How do these positive things about us as immigrants not somehow meet, you know, some of the challenges that people, we call them now because we're working on a, and I will share this with you actually, Nathaniel, it's a messaging guide uh, on the immigration narrative, like the flawed mental template that people have about immigrants. And, And I think that if we can bring more people into understanding who we are, in seeing who we are, that maybe we could move the debate a little further. I know so many people are skeptical, for example, about there ever being a fix to that's comprehensive to the immigration system. I'm an optimist in that regard, because if I go the other way and give up, I'm giving up on the lives of those 11 million people or so. What are we going to do with that, right? So it's it's important to keep going at it, no matter how long it takes, because the, the, uh, there are no other options except to ensure that whether it's little by little or, or state by state, <laughs> that we can figure out a way to resolve some of our recurring protracted immigration challenges. Politically, there are sort of two angles people take to push against liberalization of immigration or allowing people a path to citizenship. One of them is they will take jobs from people who are already here. And one of them is they're different and they will culturally change us in a way that we're not ready for. They're unmeltable or something like that, right? The economic argument is proven to be wrong. I have a company called Graphicacy that does data visualization. And we did, we did some work with the Center for American Progress where we, took a, we were looking at these, this study of the, the job needs over the next 20, 30 years. And we need immigrants to fill a huge number of jobs. We don't have the population even to, to take care of ourselves. There's tremendous needs. You can understand how some people buy the argument, but it, it is, it's not a successful one. 
What do you think about that? And what do you think about the sort of unmeltable argument? Yes. So, I mean, I, I'll just give a recent example for you, like uh, on the jobs front, like, like during the height of the, the first surge of the pandemic, who did we see remained in in restaurants, in hospitals? Many immigrant workers died the most, got sick the most. We're on the front lines. Yes. And, and what I'm saying is, as you pointed out, the, the economic argument is so powerful because we've seen proof about it over and over again. In California alone, immigrant workers contribute billions of dollars to our state economy. So I think the resistance and the justifications we create around just demonizing, dehumanizing immigrants, it's very old, Nathaniel. It's, it's being rehashed recast, reimagined over and over because they don't have anything else to say, right? Is it really so bad to change culturally? What what are we afraid of that will change? Everybody eats Thai food in this country. In fact, that's one of the great things about this country. Exactly. Like how horrible did we become when we began loving Italian food? I don't get it. Well, maybe it's salsa that frightens us the most. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You're executive director of of a substantial group now, but what was your career path from Tufts through some of the other jobs to get you into this place? Definitely. So, yeah, after I did an international um, affairs um, graduate program at Tufts University, it's the Fletcher School, and, you know, Funny enough, my, all my classmates were mostly like folks like me. It was a program designed for executives who've done a lot of work internationally before uh, doing this program. So when I graduated from that, the first job I had was with the Coalition for Human Immigrant Rights in Los Angeles. Uh, they're called CHIRLA. And uh, that was where I actually, I, I'd say, cut my teeth in both organizing and policy advocacy in America. Because when I arrived at Chirla, it was 2007, uh, we were gearing up for for another major immigration reform campaign. And this was the period where from 2007 to 2010, Washington, D.C. was practically my home. And it was where we thought we were so close to getting this immigration, this elusive immigration bill, which of course didn't happen. We couldn't even pass the DREAM Act at the time. And and I haven't said this publicly, then I'm, I'm going to share this with you now because that's a long time ago. But it was when uh, we couldn't even pass the DREAM Act in 2010 that I actually decided that I was going to stop. And, and just, you know, take stock of, because I, I spent so much of my time in my life for in that three years, anchored on this idea that we would get an immigration bill. And so I left Chirla in 2010, and I ended up stopping. Uh, it didn't mean I was taking a vacation or anything like that. I ended up working with ACLU, with the American Civil Liberties Union, and I went to the border. That was the the San Diego affiliate because I was very curious. It almost felt like the border security issue was being used as such a big wedge uh, in making sure that we have immigration reform. So I really wanted to understand border dynamics better 
So for two years, I was actually based in San Diego uh, with the ACLU there. And then I moved back to L.A. and ended up working. Uh, I was I was pretty burned out by that time. Uh, so I, I, I took a break for three years. That's how I ended up working as a consultant with a bunch of national and statewide immigrant rights organizations, always immigration. But I actually moved to a slightly different area than advocacy. I I went back to some organizing and building the capacity of smaller organizations in California because what I learned when I actually stopped, you know, my hectic, my frantic advocate's life was uh, California wasn't always like, it's not always the, the equal state that it is. Like our inequality issues are so vast and and the regions that, that I was working at, uh, they were so disproportionately resourced. A lot of the mostly gateway cities were getting all the resources like Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, were getting all the infusions in terms of, you know, development in general. So that, that was what I did. And then in, in March of 2016, I became the executive director at the California Immigrant Policy Center. Here I was, like, executive director for the first time. Uh, I was grateful for a lot of training on organizational development. So because uh, I I thought that was what I was going to bring, right? And I had a staff of 12 at the time. We're, we're getting close to 28 now. So I, I've kind of I've more than doubled the, the capacity of the organization. But guess what? You know, I started in March and November we had Trump. <laughs> So it was, uh, was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We have a strategic plan that didn't factor in fighting on a daily, monthly basis all the crazy things that the administration was, uh, excuse the word, but, yeah, it was it was intense, the, the anti-immigration policies that we had to fight on a regular basis. I'm curious what that experience you had on the border taught you and through what lens you then view Trump's build a wall very explicitly going after the border as a central plank in his political campaign. Like you knew the border now, you knew immigration policy. How did you view what he was up to? Not just, not just like whether it was right or wrong, but like whether it made any sense at all. How did you see it? I'll preface that by saying that I have always had an interest in border dynamics because when I was living in Thailand, I lived for a time in the Thai-Burma border. And so how, you know, borders are both fragile and mysterious because it's it's a gateway between two cultures, peoples. And, and it, that really fascinated me how different it is from cities, from the interior. Uh, and what I learned, of course, when, when I was in San Diego is uh, a lot of our ideas of othering people that uh, just exist in our imagination is that <laughs> border communities live lives the way people live lives in interiors, you know, in interior communities. With the difference, of course, that in border commerce is alive because we know that we have that robust exchange with Mexico on the other side. 
you know, I, I used to talk with a lot of older immigrants who said that until the U.S. decided to close its border, there was actually a much more looser like exchange between our two countries. I am not a somebody who says like open the borders, accept everybody. Look, I I'm old enough and experienced enough to know that we need to manage migration. You know, because I do agree that without ability to do that, it's chaos. I've seen that in other countries. But I think this this idea of a wall becomes such a literal and figurative metaphor for saying, keep you out, we don't want you. And then all of the other frames about othering immigrants comes with that, right? Let's keep them out because if we bring them in, they're going to bring all of these cre- like ugly things to us. And that doesn't work um, because... Migration, unfortunately or fortunately, it, it's, it's a human need. As you and I are speaking right now, hundreds of millions of people are on the move. And, you know, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think with the combined um, effects of the pandemic and warming climates in other parts of the world, pushing people out of their usual places of habitats, uh, more people are just going to seek places to survive. And countries that are rich, we're called a receiving country because we're a country where people go to to, to, to migrate. We, we kind of figure it out. Uh, the border will continue to be a contested place because, again, we don't have consensus on how we will treat it and how, except from a military perspective, you know, except from, a, from an enforcement perspective. Like, are there ways in which we can bring the the human factor into these conversations and just have a sober debate about it rather than demonizing one population that we we actually deeply misunderstand? Tell me about the role of the California Immigrant Policy Center in this. What's your job to do? What's your area of expertise as a center and what weight do you throw? We were formed about 25 years ago, and it was actually a response to some of the anti-immigrant policies that come out came out of California at the time. If you you've heard about Prop 187, back Pete Wilson times, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, and that was a, a, a seminal moment that galvanized California's immigrant rights movement to make sure that. We don't do that. And it, it took a long time, right? We're, we're now a state that is providing health care, allows undocumented immigrants to drive on our highways, in-state tuition, uh, amongst many other things. Uh, you, people can just look it up on our website. But the role that CIPC played at the beginning was to be kind of a, a convener, right? because the state is so big. We needed a way to meet as one movement. We were able to do that for a while, but now we're really more of an advocacy organization that's pushing to remove exclusionary policies where immigrants have been subject to for a long time. So this expansion of the safety net, for example, uh, expansion of the notions of community safety expansion of the notion of shelter and food and healthcare access. The, the idea is, can we close the historical gaps? 
that have existed for a long time that have kept immigrants from just living uh, a quality life in our state, from thriving in our state? Can we close that gap and then show to the rest of the country that this can be done? You know, the state has not cratered because we have been nicer to immigrants. And what we're trying to figure out is how can we sustain it? And, you know, CIPC is, of course, not doing this alone. We have amazing partners in California, some of whom are actually uh, bigger than us, uh, that are, are working with us to make sure that we create a contrast between in how we treat immigrants. There is another way. You know, there is an option. And it's not a bad option because guess what? Healthier immigrants is good for our state. You know, immigrants that can eat better and have better nutrition is good for our state. So it's, it's all of that, that affirmative solutions rather than, oh, you know, keep them out. What, what, what will that do? Right. So I, I'm simplifying some of the, the work that we've done. But really, uh, I specifically, we work in areas of access to the safety net. So when I talk about healthcare and food, we're really trying to make sure that immigrants have access to those, access to legal services, so that immigrants who don't have access to lawyers can have some state funding for that. It helps slow, if not hopefully address, the deportation pipeline, because a lot of immigrants are, are and are getting separated from their families because of deportation policies, right? We also work in the area of immigrant integration and inclusion. So this is creating more opportunities in the workforce development space. Uh, and then um, lastly, we have an economic justice uh, portfolio at CAPC. And this is kind of looking at, okay, uh, can we really define specifically what undocumented immigrant workers bring to California, you know, if the number that's thrown around is about 2.5 to 3 million undocumented immigrants here, half of that are productive workers. So what can that bring? Uh, yeah, in, in a way, it we've, we've done this over the years. It's a piecemeal approach to greater immigrant inclusion. The final point I want to make is that it is possible. It is possible to go in a different direction in immigration. And, and, and still be the community that we want to be. So would you say California has made itself a model compared to other states for what we could be nationally? How close is it to what you would like to see for your state, for other states, for our country? I think, I think we're halfway there. Some of our partners in the state government say, what do you mean halfway? We've done so much. Well, Here's, here's the caveat, right? Uh, yes, we, we're including immigrants in healthcare. We, ha we have something here that we call the California Blueprint, Nathaniel. And yes, we are selling that as a model. And it's primarily because, and I'm being very candid here, so many of, of these expansion programs are long overdue. You know, when we started advocating for healthcare for undocumented adults and, and older adults, the, we met people who haven't seen a doctor for 15 years, and they've lived here for more than that. It's like when we launched this Health for All campaign, 
it was really an urgent plea to please let not let us not allow these undocumented members of our community to die from treatable conditions. Nobody, nobody should have to go through that. Illness does not recognize immigration status. <laughs> Whether you're you're a legal permanent resident or, or undocumented immigrant, you will get sick. <laughs> and and if one person gets sick, their, their neighbors get sick. And the people that they cut the grass for or be the nurse for or whatever get sick. I mean, we're all on, on communicable diseases. We're all in it together for sure. We are better off if everyone is healthy. Yeah, absolutely. You said you've more than doubled it in size. You've you've navigated a very uh, difficult administration into a less difficult but imperfect administration. What have you had to do yourself to grow in that role? You know, when I when I started as an executive director, <laughs> I used to tease my friends like, "No, my mother never taught me how to be an ED." <laughs> no, it wasn't easy. I went from being an advocate who's like always in, in, in these rooms where we're negotiating to somebody who has to take care <laughs> of the lives of my employees and still function fully in every aspect of my life. So, you know, if we're talking leadership here, I, I owe my, my longevity and fortitude, of course, part of it to my experience. You know, when whenever I would have some difficulties in my organization, I always think back to them. It's like, oh yeah, but look, look at my life before. You know, uh, going through fact-finding missions to look for mass graves and getting shot at in uh, by the military. Like, but then I realized, no, I mean, I have a different life now, and I have to figure out how to survive this one and thrive in this one. And I had. Actually, fortunately, a lot of support, not just from our team at CAPC. I have an amazing team in my organization, but our funders were very supportive. They recognized, like philanthropy also really managed to come together with us, especially during the Trump years and understood that if we don't fortify the nonprofit sector, if we don't create and help them maintain what they need to sustain, we're going to hollow out the sector. Even then, like we saw a lot of attrition, a lot of transition in in the immigrant rights community under Trump and during the pandemic. Yeah. Too much stress. Too much among stress. Among other things. And you know, the pandemic really laid bare how fragile everything is. I'm grateful that I have the staff that's decided our mission is important. Beyond our immediate concerns, it is helping a lot of people live better lives and what can be better than that like that you know it makes meaning i noticed that you managed to find time to to spend at harvard at at the rockwood leadership program at stanford grad school well-known institutions each in their own way what's going on that you're continuing to train even as a mature leader I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, no, I think I, I, I once aspired to be an academic. So I always, uh, my idea of rest is to do these professional development opportunities. 
to learn and reflect. Because my philosophy uh, in my work is that I, I, if I want to have an organization that's learning, that is self-aware, that I have to lead by example. That I don't have all the answers. I still don't. No matter how long I've been in this work, I don't know many things. And just trying to find answers. Like I, I did the Harvard and Stanford courses because I was le- trying to learn as an ED how to become a better fundraiser, <laughs> how to understand and implement strategic plans. You know, they weren't like lofty. They're great programs, but they did not improve my personal life in a way, but they improved my ability to be the executive director at CIPC. How do you see the national politics around immigration? The Trumpists seem to see immigration as a wonderful wedge issue for them. They can associate the Democrats with, I don't know, the underclass, the browner folks and use fear and scare tactics and migrant caravans to rile people up to vote their way. Democrats seem to sometimes want to steer away from it and then sometimes want to embrace and activate the diverse electorate that they have. But how do you see this, this so the general immigration issue in the world of politics? I think we're actually at this very difficult moment where so many dynamics are impacting how we can come together at a consensus, right? Like our deep political polarization, uh, the, the racism that informs how some people think about immigrants, and justice the atomization of the truth, <laughs> how what you and I say in a different setting and context can easily get invalidated. So we don't have somehow a unifying leader or stance that say, look, if, if you trust me, we can come together on this and, and it will be okay. We don't have a coming party. We don't have, we don't have even in the realm of whether it's social media or national television, figures that inspire us to come together. You know, and, and I'm talking in such lofty sense. I am a romantic. That's why I haven't given up hope. Is because I think that if we can continue to insist on, on those values of our shared humanity, our shared dignity, that if we can only learn to respect each other again, I, like, these are things that are still worth fighting for. But it's so hard to get that through Nathaniel because with the Trumpists, for example, there is their own role and it's becoming impenetrable by the day because at least from that side, nobody is really bravely saying, enough, this is not the way to go. In the Democratic Party, it's like it's, it's the same Dynamics that we've seen, like at least that I've seen when we were advocating during the Obama administration, the political will is so hard to deploy and the political courage along with that. And and I know that they understand it. They're on our side. Like We have many progressive champions in Congress, but I, I have to tell you, I can't quite understand how we just can't do even the smaller pieces. 
we seem like we're always two senators short of it or 10 or yeah, it's super frustrating. Some of the hard edges of the Trump policies have been sanded off and, and a lot of better people are in charge. Do you feel much difference in California with the change of administration without Stephen Miller uh, taking swings every day? Just in terms of not feeling like to have to put out fires every day, absolutely. My position and my organization's position is in a situation of great uncertainty, while we're fighting for the immigration proposals in the Build Back Better bill, we need to continue to strengthen the state infrastructure. So we're just going to keep going here in the state. Like we, we have to make sure that what we've started in terms of this great project of inclusion continues regardless of who is in power in Sacramento. Because otherwise, I might as well just pack up and go because it would be tragic to lose those opportunities that we have created. And it has really, I, I can tell you with all honesty, it has made significant improvement in the lives of immigrants who would otherwise not have that, right? And to me, that, that's huge. Like, how do we now deploy all these lessons and the political power that we're building in other states and, and make sure that we have the resources to do that? I think there's more than one way, right? It's not just the federal approach. Yeah. Are there groups in other states that are analogs to yours? Like who would you point out in another state is doing really good, similar work? Yeah. So our partners in New York are are doing amazing work, uh, very similar to what California is doing. So the New York Immigrant Coalition and Make the Road New York are two organizations that we partner with in just sharing, you know, what are some of the lessons that, that, can live out there in the world. Illinois is, is starting to, to do something similar, as well as Washington State and Oregon. But those are some of the immediate um, states that I have in mind in terms of like more progressive policies towards immigration. What do you see happening in the red states on immigration? Is there movement there? Are they getting worse? Are they staying the same? What do you see around the country? I think for places where there's more advocacy uh, presence or, or infrastructure, there are at least seeds of, of progress taking place, even in a place like Texas. And primarily because of a place like Texas, like many advocates on the ground are getting involved in there to just be more uh, resilient, but also not give up on the idea that they can create targeted solutions to the immigration problems. It's probably harder in places where Trumpism, for example, is very baked in. Uh, But this is exactly why we have to have state-by-state approaches to our immigration challenges, because in so-called red states, we need to be able to change people's minds about how they think about people like me, (laughs) to see me. To, to know that this is who I am, that I'm reasonable, I'm, I'm willing to have a conversation, I'm willing to help you understand me. But if you have already closed your mind uh, about who I am, and that this, this is just a version of me that you're going to believe, 
uh, then it's going to be very hard to get through because at the end of the day, we need to get to the voters. <laughs> we need to get to the political discourse so that mindsets could change. And, and without the willingness on the one hand to listen to our stories, but on my part, the courage to continue telling my story until somebody hears me from places where people don't want to hear me, then it is very going to be very, very hard. For me, I think there is good heartedness in every county in the country, in the people. I don't think that a, that a county that votes over 80% for Trump means that they can't be reasonable or kind to other types of people. If they're approached the right way, if it doesn't get caught up in polarized party snarls, I think that when you when you survey people the right way, you find an openness and a more of a sense of us all being Americans than you get when you when you hit the veins of current polarization. That that seems like a possibility to mine for political movements that need to be successful, like pro-immigrant movements. Do you see that? I mean, how much time do you spend looking at public opinion and how people think about Immigrants. Yeah, I I do look at uh, at that. I look at the literature. I, I look at at the news. I look at the polls, and and then I, you know I am informed by what inspires me with the work in our state, California. Thirty years ago, was not always the bastion of pro immigrant policies that it was. It was the complete opposite. So how did we get here? As I said, I am optimistic because uh, I've seen it happen. And so I think there is hope for those places. As you said, if we continue to demonize each other, then all we see is hell. <laughs> so let's let's figure out a way to look at this, you know, whether it takes county by county, city by city to find out who are like-minded, who don't have those flawed mental templates that I was talking about. On, on immigrants and immigration. And again, Nathaniel, there's so many examples, whether it's in Minnesota, in Florida, in, in places where some of these changes are slightly happening. Because remember, we, we pay attention to a lot of the dramatic breaking stuff, but change happens quietly and insidiously too. And I'm batting for that. You know, I'm batting for us who are working quietly to change one person to 100, you know, one county to 50 counties, I'll take that. Because I think, I know we have friends who are already working on the big stuff. So to be an effective movement, this is what I learned from growing up in the movement in the Philippines. We, we need to have a way to discipline what is the moral compass that we're following together uh, to know what's urgent and important right now versus the long game, like all of those things. I may sound like, you know, some some crazy optimist, but like, what's my choice? <laughs> I've seen how going to the dark place just that just it's just that it's one color, <laughs> it's darkness. And also, sometimes it gets worse, and then it gets better. My fear is nationally, it's going to get worse. Um, at the midterm and maybe at the next presidential election, it's uh, altogether too too possible. What would that mean if if we lose the Congress and we lose the presidency again to the Republicans to the 
to Trump or Trump-like folk, what would that mean to California and to the immigration battle in the short run while they're in power? If past is prologue, right? Like we now have a president in terms of experiencing what it was like under uh, the Trump years and how California pivoted was, we're going to go the other way around and we're going to keep going in that direction. If only for the fact that the, we also have millions of people here to protect. While, again, the, from what I've seen of the interviews that you've done uh, in the podcast, we have so many like-minded people too. And how can we bring our forces together? How can we have a proportionately powerful response to what the enemies of goodness are putting out there? May I say proportional, not not 25%. If, if they're giving us 100%, how are we giving back 100% in a way we talk about ourselves, in, in the way we position ourselves ourselves politically, you know, in every way, what is the proportionate answer? If you were going to advise the many political consultants and political thinkers about how to campaign on the immigration issue when the other side brings it up in their congressional race or their Senate race or their mayoral race, what would you say? What should candidates say? What should you be telling your candidates to say about immigrants? Or have you already said that mainly in what we've already talked about? I'm no political operative. In some ways, I've said that, you know, like insist on our humanity, uh, insist on, on, on the fact that we actually share so many values with each other. We have a lot more in common. I know it's easier said than that. We actually have a tool for that now. For, for the last four years, Nathaniel, we have worked on a guide that has an answer for all of these misunderstood aspects of immigration. How would someone find this guide? I will email <laughs> you about it because we don't also want it to get to the wrong hands. So we want to make sure that we have. But someone could go to you and uh, yes, and, yes. E and email you and ask for it or something. Absolutely. Uh, and it's just like it's, it's a messaging tool. But we have gone deep into the research. We did we did deep canvassing around it to make sure that. And again, this is not some you know, secret weapon that it's You've not. You've been doing some testing of how, how well it testing, works. Mes yeah. Message testing, yeah. uh, canvassing independent voters uh, and, and, and populations that are confused about the immigration issue. And what we've proven is you can change that mindset, but they need to see us as human beings with the same aspirations as they have, the same fears We've seen in, in, in our deep canvassing that right then and there, people change their minds. People change their minds. And then how do you make it stick? Right? How that singular moment of, oh, now I know what you mean, keep becoming, I completely understand you all the way to, you know, whatever decisions they need to make about us and each other. Yeah. It's truly a battle for the hearts and minds of people all across the country every day. It just is. It is. It is. And and you're right. Like we have some challenges in in the coming months, but um So it is. So it is. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? 
I think this is such a luxury having this conversation for an hour and, and, and you know, so I'm just really grateful for, I, I think you touch upon all the things, you know, my journey, my organization's journey, California's journey, and this country's journey. Like, I, I really appreciate having this this time to just be able to share. And, you know, I'm not a talking points person. <laughs> I don't prepare, like, things to regal you about because my experience is proof that there is a way out of of, of the things that, that we struggle with, but it's hard work. <laughs> it's very, very difficult, no easy solutions. And we need so many of us agreeing that that's the way it is. And I mean, the way I see it is this is just one of so many dimensions of this battle to educate people about what is right and what is wrong. And the stakes for the country are the difference between what you experienced with dictatorship and what we experience in our best governed cities and states and what they could become welcoming places that support the people that live there instead of living in fear that somebody's going to take away from us something that we already have. This whole battle is, it's the whole system is at war between those two sides right now, I fear. Yeah. And, and I hope, you know, these kinds of conversations, if we only reach one or five people rethinking how they think about immigration and many other things, because as a species, we're, we're, <laughs> we're up against uh, so many odds. Well, it's, an, it's been an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I'm good. Thanks so much. I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm now gonna be a listener of your podcast. I'm actually sharing it with our staff. Once it's live, Nathaniel, let us know so that we can we can share it on our social media pages. That was Cynthia Buiza. Cynthia is at caimmigrant.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.